The believer needs to realize that there are enemies that will affect our lives and will hinder us from growing spiritually and from doing God's will, and if you will, from maturing as Christians. And I want to remind you of the opposite of growing uh, by reminding you of what the writer of the Hebrews tells us in chapter 5. I trust you're there. So follow as I read Hebrews uh, 5, 12 through 14. It tells us, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have had their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The writer here wants us to realize that there's a difference between growing and those who don't grow, those who use the word, those who don't. And you and I who are believers need to have the desire to move forth and be growing, if you will. Now, in light of that, because we should be growing, we need to realize something else. And that is what we want to consider tonight. And that is why some people just do not grow in the faith. I'm talking here about those who profess to be believers, but why don't they grow, assuming they're saved? Well, we want to zero in on the reality that there are hindrances to growth, and one of them is Satan, also known as the devil. And there's something we must remember. We must remember two things. First of all, we must remember that Satan hates God. And because he hates God, he hates everything about God. He hates what God wants, what God does. I mean, he hates God, okay? But also, in that same vein, he hates those who are created in his image. So tonight, we must realize, regardless of anybody in the world, Satan hates you. He hates you enough, if he could, to pull you into hell. Even if you're a believer or not, he has a desire to destroy you. And that's what we want to look at tonight as we think about the opposition Satan has toward us as we ought to be growing, but he wants to do something about it. So we want to look at the opposition of the devil and before before we go to 1 Peter 5, I want to remind you of a verse that tells us just a little about Satan, and that's in Revelation 12, verse 9. It says, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, referring to the Garden of Eden, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So we know that Satan is active. His angels or demons are active. And one thing Satan wants to do is deceive people. 
I'm okay. And that can mean many things as Satan will strive to strive to deceive us. So with that, would you go there, 1 Peter 5, and we want to look at this portion tonight as well as some others, but 1 Peter 5, I want you to notice here what Satan is up to and how we need to respond, and we'll leave here, come back, and so on, but we're going to pretty well focus on this passage. 1 Peter 5, follow as I begin reading at verse 6, 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Since the Garden of Eden, Satan has opposed God and has manifested through the destruction in one way or another of those made in his image. In verses 6 and 7 here, we are told to humble ourselves to submit to the Lord, realizing his care for us. And if you're not in the word, the scriptures, even these things will be new to you, especially by way of application. But you and I need to find ourselves in God's word. We then see in verse 8, be sober. And then he tells us why. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, as we look at this verse, verse 8, there are some key words we need to pick up. And the first word is the word adversary. Adversary is an opponent. Uh, and, and we need to realize he's against us. But don't think of an athletic event like you're playing tennis or football. Uh, rather, think of gladiators where they come out with swords and only one person is going to survive in the end. That is the word here. That's the picture of an adversary. He is out to get us, out to destroy us. Another thing we need to see here is the word the devil. The word devil means accuser or slanderer. We're told elsewhere that he constantly lies about us and accuses us before God. He thinks he's spiritual. Look at him. Uh, we'll look at an illustration in a moment at a guy by the name of Job. But that's exactly what happened. And he just might do it with you too. Only the difference is when we come to the Bible, Job's name is there. Yours and mine aren't, but the principle, the reality of what Satan does is there. There's another thing we need to see, and that's roaring lion. It says he goes about seeking whom he may devour. Uh, what's interesting about a roaring lion when it comes to hunting is when lions hunt, 
they do not roar. A lion or a cat, you've seen them stalk something, how they'll get down on their tummies. Oh, that's for, no. But somebody who will get down, just think of that cat or the lion sneaking and then pouncing. That's how lions hunt. But when it goes about as a roaring lion, it means he's really hungry, he really wants to win, and it's a real dangerous situation because he's not going to give up. Not when he's out hunting and roaring, as the text tells us, Satan is doing toward us. And then it tells us here, he goes about seeking whom he may devour. Now, that word devour is, I used to think of a teenager eating. Um, I've seen other people eat this way, where they, I, I remember eating lunch in the cafeteria when I was in high school. And one guy had some cake, and he was using a fork. And this is what happened. The guy is near me, and he's taking his fork with the cake. And he got close to his mouth, and he inhaled it. And the guy said, that flew off your fork right into your mouth. And he was all excited about it. Well, you know, that's what Satan is after. He wants to gulp it down. And he wants to gulp you and I. He wants to destroy us any way he can. No holds barred. Now, I trust that makes you feel good and secure tonight. But let's go on. I want you to go to the book of Job. Job chapter 1. Job 1. We're going to look at a few passages as we move forth. And the first one we want to look at is Job. Right after Esther and before Psalms. Job 1, beginning at verse 8, we read this. Then the, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord is introducing the activity here. The Lord said to Satan, have you, Satan, considered my servant Job? Have you thought about him? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns or hates evil. So Satan, have you considered him? God points Job out to Satan. So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? He's honoring you, but it's for his own good. It's something for him. Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Okay? That's what he says to God. So what does God say? Verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is, your, is in your power. Only do not lay your hand on his person or his body. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. What we have here. As the Lord speaks and says, stretch out your hand against him. And Satan says, he'll curse you. He's only in it for what he gets out of it. Well, we'll see. In the basic tenet of the book, yes, Job has his down times in here. But 
One thing we read also, especially toward the first part of the book, he did not curse God. Rather, he trusted him. And why did he do that? We see here in, look at, if you will, verse 21. As he prays, he fell down and worshiped and said, Naked came I from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's lost all of his income in a matter of a few minutes. He lost his children. I mean, it was a down day for him. But he did not curse God. Why not? Look at verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned or hated evil. He had an understanding of the person of God and he had a reverence for God that he would obey him, trust him, please him. He had grown to be what he should have been. So when the trial came, he was ready to face it. But there's another text I'd ask you to turn to. Go to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And again, we find here a passage dealing with Satan. And I'd ask you to follow as I begin at verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10 of Ephesians. Paul writes and he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand, notice, against the wiles of the devil. You need the armor of God to stand. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in, in heavenly places. This battle is a spiritual one. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Your belt represents truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to stand against the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now here in this passage, we find what we're to do before the enemy. The one who leads the unsaved, he's out to get you. Now go to chapter 2 of this same book, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. It tells us a little bit about ourselves again as it relates to Satan. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you, you before you were saved, you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works and the sons of disobedience. You serve Satan. Why did you live the way you used to? If you're unsaved, if you're unsaved, that's the way you live now. Well, it's because Satan has 
working on you real hard. He wants to hurt you. And if you're a Christian, he wants to hurt your spiritual growth. Let me illustrate it. Go to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Now we're going to slow down looking at passages. But I want you to get all this. Put it together in your thinking. Because Satan is against you. Luke 8. Look at verse 12. This is in the context of the um, parable of the sower and the seed. And I want you to see what Satan is doing in this parable. In Luke 8, verse 12. It says, talking about the stone that goes by the wayside. Verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear, hear the word. Falls in your ears. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts lest they should believe and be saved. Oh, but then he goes on, but the ones in the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy and have no root, believe for a while, and the time of temptation they fall away. What happens? Satan's against them. He wants to keep people from being saved. Their mind will wander in church. They'll go to sleep. They'll think about other things, anything that Satan can take the word from you and pull you closer and closer to hell. That's his goal. And he'll send temptations before us. He'll do anything to destroy you. Anything. You're a target. I'm a target. He wants to destroy us. Think about it. It's not fun to have bullies after you, is it? Some of us have over the years. But here's one who wants to destroy. Now, what might he do? Well, I want to share some ideas here. What Satan just might do to keep us from growing if we're Christians and certainly keep us from Christ if we're not. What will he do? Well, first... He will make us think it is not necessary to know the scriptures. I, I really don't need to know the scriptures. And I've had people say, why bother? Do you remember, though, how Jesus <coughs> resisted satanic attack when he was tempted in the wilderness? He, was, he quoted scripture, didn't he? He knew scripture that pertain to the specific event. He didn't just pull a scripture. No, no. What related to it, he used. He quoted scripture. Earlier in Luke, we aren't turning there, but it says he grew in favor with man, with God. Why did he grow? How did he know the scriptures? Well, one reason he did as he grew was his mother and Joseph, I'm sure, taught him the necessity of hiding God's word in his heart. He came as a baby. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He didn't come forth a walking encyclopedia. He grew and he learned. 
I can't explain it all, but that's what the Word of God tells us. He grew. He learned things. And he hid God's Word in his heart to the extent, as the psalmist would write, your Word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Do we do that? Do we hide God's Word in our heart? It's not enough to be familiar with the general tenets of Scripture. We need to know it. So when dif difficulties come our way, we'll know the Scriptures to take you through it. And if not, if we don't know the Word of God, Satan's going to win. And I don't want him to win against me. He will, one thing he'll do is make us think it's not necessary to know Scripture. But another thing he'll do is he'll make us establish priorities outside the Scripture. I want to make a bold statement that I believe will get your attention and grab a hold of it. Now, you're going to take out, theoretically, a pencil or pen piece of paper or you can go to your iPad your iPhone your computer any place okay we're gonna write things down you're gonna make a list of what is important to you or list your priorities on it on where you write here are some things you're gonna write on it you have your church and Bible reading or Bible study. Next, you have your wife or husband and your children. Next, you have your job. Next, you have your house. Next, you have Facebook and or your hobbies. I'm making a broad picture here, but you make sure that the Lord is on the top of the list and you say he is the number one priority. You follow that. You've made a list. Right up there is Bible reading, church attendance, but above all you've put the Lord at the top of the list and you say he's the number one priority. Okay? Sounds good. But might I say it's totally wrong. What I just said is totally unscriptural. That is probably something Satan would like. He would like you to have a pigeonholed life. And yes, put the Lord at the top. That's fine. As I have a relationship with my wife, pleasing the Lord and getting to know my neighbor, my reason is to um, live for Christ and so on. But why do I say it's wrong? Even if the Lord's at the top, go to Colossians, please. Colossians, oh, you don't need to turn, it's on the screen. Look at it. Colossians 1, it says he, referring to Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. 
not just be first, but with your relationship to your husband or wife, to your children, to your job, to your Bible reading, to your church attendance, to your relationship to the neighbors. And everyone, Christ must relate, and Christ must be preeminent in all things. And if you aren't growing, you might not be thinking like Colossians 1.18 tells us. It's not a list of priorities. There's but one, and it's Christ. And everything else relates to it. Satan wants us to have the list. He doesn't want us to have Colossians 1 verse 18. Christ must be preeminent in all things. But if you're not growing, you may not think that way. Let me illustrate it. We know that there's the need to be in the Word of God for personal growth. Quiet, time, devotions, whatever you want to call it. We also see our stewardship as relates to the assembled church. Yet before the day is over, many excuses to avoid this or that. Christ must be preeminent. You know, it's been encouraging to me, and maybe to you too, I trust it has, our attendance the last few weeks in both morning and evening services has been where it should be. It's an exciting thought. And by the way, don't forget Wednesday night as we have our business meeting too. Christ ought to be preeminent even on Wednesday. Third, Satan will also want us to make or to be content with dietary Christianity. What do we mean by that? Well, to grow, we need to have, see the need to be in the scriptures. Let them sink in our minds and change our lives. And the word will come to us as we study from the exposition of the scriptures as we gather, even from fellow Christians as we just share our lives. But Satan, again, will attempt you to say you can get by with just a little dietary doses of God's word. What's really sad, and I don't know if you do this or not, but some people will talk on Facebook how they read the daily bread today. That's this much with a little bit of scripture. That's why Jeremy Estrema used to call it the daily crumb. Because that's about all. No, we should be spending time in his word. Picture the couple that marries and says, we'll meet occasionally to express our love and companionship. Uh, we need each of these to help us grow. We need Christians to admonish us, don't we, in the things of God. We need each other. We need to assemble as God's word commands as we've seen in the morning. But we need to remind ourselves that that little booklet is not sufficient. Satan wants to get you and you need to feast and be growing, realizing that, in Christ, and that all things in Christ need to be preeminent. That's how we need to be living. 
He wants us to be content with just a little bit. I was in church. I don't need Sunday school. I don't need evening service. I don't need Wednesday. Just a little bit's fine. Fourth, and the last one we want to share, is he wants us to misunderstand the truth. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And look what he does here. There's much here about Satan. As Paul writes to Warren, the Corinthians, look at 2 Corinthians, and we aren't going to read the whole chapter, but look at verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians, verses 3 and 4 in chapter 11. Paul says, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that was years ago, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which we have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put it up with it. Hey, listen to me. And then he goes on and talks about it some more. But there are people who preach another Jesus. Not only the cults, but people who name themselves as a church. But they will preach false doctrine. We need to realize that. Satan is a deceiver. Go to verse 13. Look at verses 13 and 14. For such are false apostles deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. In other words, you think they're pretty good, but they're not. And no wonder for Satan himself transformed himself into an angel of light. He did that to Eve and he does it to us. And people listen. Someone says, makes a statement like this, well that's your truth. This is our truth. And that's their truth. Those statements are foolish. There is only one truth, one line of truth in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we see that. There is only one truth as it intertwines and manifests itself in the 66 books of the Bible. And where there are contradictions or seeming contradictions in teaching, realize one has to be wrong. And we must make sure that there's harmony in the rest of the word and that we're studying God's word and say, yes, this is it. We've studied it. We see the answers. But it takes time and it takes work. There are those who say, you know, you can, baptism can kind of be a, a chore. I mean, do you realize how much water we put in the tank? And it would be so much easier if we just took a pitcher and poured it on your head. Or if we sprinkled a little on your face. Well, not that much. Do you see what I'm saying? What do the scriptures say? What does it mean? And it takes Bible study. Satan wants to deceive us. So, 
What is the answer to satanic attack? Well, go back to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5. And look at what Peter writes about in 1 Peter 5. We looked at verses 6 and 7, but now let's look at verse 8. He says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Be sober. Realize he's after us. It's the opposite of drunkenness. Your senses aren't dull. You need to realize what's happening. Be vigilant. Be on guard. Your enemy is out there. He desires that we sleep. Didn't remember when Jesus prayed as he's facing a temptation to avoid the cross? And while he's praying, the disciples, what? Slept. Be vigilant. Be awake. And then he also says in verse 9, resist him. Resist him. Resist him steadfastly. Steadfast in the faith. If you've read the book, Pilgrim's Progress, and it's a good book to read, but one thing as he faced Apollyon, or Satan, one thing he had to do was stand there face to face for the victory. Whom resists steadfast, you realize he's there, and you stand to fight. If you would, go to Ephesians chapter 6 again. We looked at part of that. I want to look at a little bit more now. Ephesians 6. As we think about the parts of the armor again, look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You need them. Because we're wrestling against, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all stand. That stand therefore, having your waist the truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, then look at verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. I believe what Paul had in mind as he talks here about this shield, Romans had two types of shield. A round one, like two feet, 18 inches, two feet in diameter, that you'd hold on your arm and you'd use the other hand to sword fight. Then they had another type of um, shield. It was about the width of your body, and it came almost to the top of your head. It was heavy. It was made out of heavy leather. You didn't sword fight with it. You, what was it used for? When they were going to attack a great army, they would come in behind those shields. They'd be next to each other, and they would get down behind them. And as the arrows would fly through the air, those shields would protect them from the wiles of the devil, if you will. That's the picture we need to see. 
Now, when a Roman soldier went to battle, we're told that when he'd go forth, his wife or his mother, depending on the case, would hand him his shield, that heavy thing, and she would say these words, you either come back with your shield or on it. But you don't leave it behind. And when we're facing Satan, we don't put our shield down because we're going to lose. And so he says, stand. Then we come to verse 18, and it tells us this, praying always without prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. You pray. You pray for one another. We're at war. Satan wants to win. He'll do whatever he can. And then there's one other verse. In James, we read this. Therefore, submit to God. Do what he tells you. Resist the devil. And what? He'll flee. There's other targets out there. What are we going to do? See, the context of our study, Satan will not keep me from growing if I move forth in the word of God as we've seen tonight. And that the Lord is preeminent in all things. Oh, might we realize that. And I want to remind you of one other thing as we close. And it's this. If you're unsaved tonight, you're serving Satan whether you want to admit it or not. In fact, John 8.44 tells us that you're of your father, the devil. And that's the type of person the Lord saves. Where do we see ourselves as we're confronted with God's word? Let's pray. Then we want to take the time again to show that video, or video that we saw during the offertory this morning. Only it's been redone, edited, and so you can read it better. So we trust it'll work, but none, none of our stuff ever doesn't work. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the time. Guide us tonight as we leave for your glory that we might please you. Bring us together tomorrow for your glory. In Jesus' name.